0: It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to Rico Bronia, yet another edition And we get to talk about a Met acquisition. Remember that time during the offseason when nothing was happening, it was pure speculation? Well, now we've got action, and the people, the Met fans, got exactly what you wanted. We got exactly what we wanted. Hopefully we don't regret it, as the Met signed Cody Senga very late Saturday night to a five-year contract. Hopefully, it's only a three-year contract because he's got an opt after three years. And if he's any good, he's probably opting out after three years. The reason I say it's what the people wanted, obviously, I made my opinion clear that Senga, Bassett were the two best options to fill that third spot in the rotation. Senga kind of offers you that mysterious upside. But I put a poll out not that long ago. I'd say it was about three or four days ago. And it was very, very simple. It was, Met fans, who do you prefer? And I only gave those two choices, Senga and Bassett, because I think there's a pretty big drop if they didn't end up with either guy. No offense, Ross Stripling was not exactly going to get a ton of votes. And I put it out there. You know, usually when I put a poll out, it'll get about six, 7,000 votes, you know, give or take. This one actually got 11,000 votes. So for whatever reason, more people were interested in answering this question than your normal poll question. And it was overwhelming. And I can't say I'm stunned by it. I guess I'd say I'm mildly surprised. 75% of people, and again, that's 11,000 people voting, preferred Senga over Bassett. And last time on the Rico, when we were comparing the two, even though I made it clear I preferred Senga, which we'll get into throughout this podcast, Bassett was a fine backup plan because Chris Bassett over the last three years last year with the Mets, obviously the previous two years with Oakland, has been as dependable as they come. And I wondered if the comments late in the season and then subsequently struggling in his last two starts against the Braves and Padres almost soured most Mets fans on him. But I would not have been disappointed if Bassett was the guy. But clearly the overwhelming majority were intrigued by the ghost forkball. That was it. They were just drawn in by the appeal of something called a ghost ball. So 75% of people said Koday Sengel was their preferable choice. And late Saturday night, we got it. And I apologize. Because if I stayed up Saturday night, this podcast would have been recorded 24 hours earlier. But after the Nets pulled off that shocking victory over the Indiana Pacers, I was very, very tired. And my parents came over to help out with the kids. And me and my wife looked at each other and we was like, man, we can go to sleep. This is great. So I think it was by about ten fifteen I was passed out. We were both passed out. And so I woke up, I'd say about five AM. And my wife was already up. And she says, So do you know? And I said, Do I know what? I just woke up. She's like, the Mets made a signing. So how about this? Before I even checked my phone to see the Mets text chat or Pete Hoffman or anybody else, I got my wife at five AM telling me the Mets signed somebody. So this was very exciting for me because the last time and really the only time my wife ever broke Met news to me was when Ioannis Cespedes signed, and I don't remember which contract it was. (laughs) If it was the good one or if it was the really bad one. I actually think it was the good one. I think it was the short-term deal that he signed after the 2015 season. And the only reason she got it is because news pops up on her phone. And sometimes, you know, this news makes... Uh, The Mets signing makes like big news because she's not following, you know, sports places. She's following like Fox News and CNN. But apparently Fox News likes to report on baseball. So as soon as she said that, I looked at her and I said, all right, this is big here, baby. It's very big. Is it Code Senga? And she says, yes. So immediately I was like, yes, we got Code Senga. And she's like, who the hell is that? I said, ah, he's a pitcher. I've never seen a pitch other than some YouTube highlights, but I'm excited. So she broke me the news and I went to my text messages, and Pete Hoffman was like, yo, Code Sanga. Uh Met's text chat, Kode Sanga. So I apologize. If I was up like Hoffman was up watching MMA, uh, I would have seen it at night and we would have recorded this 24 hours later. But you know what? I like the fact that I had a chance to marinate on this. The fact that we all had a chance to marinate on this because. As good of a move as it seems, as excited as I am, we do need to go into this knowing there is a lot of uncertainty. And if you look at the history of Japanese professional baseball players coming over to the States, it's a mixed bag and there's no exact science to this. The one thing I do know, and I planned on talking about this before they signed Senga anyway, was kind of looking back at the history of the Mets importing players from Japan and A lot of it was when the Mets would import players from Japan, they were not exactly going after the big ticket item. They weren't going after the guy that was highly, highly touted. When they signed Kaz Matsui, there was another Matsui coming over. His name was Hideki. And it wasn't a real surprise because coming over, Hideki was the Godzilla. Kaz Matsui was, you know, what the hell was his nickname? He was just Kaz Matsui, you know? So you knew going in, Hideki Matsui was coming over with a lot more fanfare. In 2001, when the Mets signed Suyoshi Shinjo, you knew Ichiro Suzuki was coming over with a lot more fanfare. So the Mets' failures in importing players from Japan was not just strictly an example of the Mets being dumb or the Mets bringing over the wrong guys. They were knowingly bringing over the wrong guys because they weren't going after the top guys. And Kode Senga is one of those top guys. There's no perfect comparison but when you look back at a lot of the pitchers that have come over over the years and a lot of them have been really good or they've been really good in short bursts. So for example, Daisuke Matsuzaka, while overall we don't think of him as a success in the US. He did have one really good season. I think it was his second year with Boston. Hideo Nomo was, you know, mostly a mixed bag. You know, he burst onto the scene after the strike and pitched really well, and then by the time he became a New York Met you know, in 1998, he stunk. And then he bounced around the league, actually ended up back with the Dodgers and pitched pretty well. So there are, you know, even if you don't want to say Matsuzaka, who also ended up pitching with the Mets, and he was a bore to watch. It took about an hour and a half in between pitches. And he wasn't very good when he was here. But they had their moments. You know what I mean? Like even the guys that weren't huge successes had their moments, even if it's just the unknown of the first couple of years. You know, Masahiro Tanaka, is a real interesting one because when Tanaka came over at age 25 after pitching really, really well in Japan, he burst onto the scene and was awesome. I mean, Yankee fans would tell you, he was great. And then he was basically pitching with his UCL hanging by a thread, and he was never as good as he was the first year he was over. But he ended up becoming like a really dependable guy and a guy that I think Yankee fans would tell you to this day, they trusted in a big spot. And he had plenty of moments where he was trusted in a big spot. So if I told you right now, Kode Senga will become Masahiro Tanaka, are we signing for that? And my answer would be, yeah, I would be. Obviously, the dream is that Senga becomes an ace, that Senga can almost become what Yu Darvish has become overall. And Darvish has now had a long career over here. He came over at a very young age. But when I look at my expectation. My expectation is, at the minimum, be a middle-of-the-rotation guy because that's really what they're asking him to be after Verlander and after Scherzer. But the intrigue is that maybe he's better than even just that. And that's not really a knock on Chris Bassett or anybody else. I think we've seen the best of Chris Bassett, and it's pretty good. You know, you look at the last three years with the A's and then last year with the Mets, Chris Bassett's a bulldog. Chris Bassett's a dependable guy. Obviously, if Senga gives you that production, I think we're happy with it. But there's the intrigue of maybe he's better. You know, maybe this guy comes over and he actually dominates the league, especially early on. And this is a championship team, or at least we're hoping this is a championship team, right? The expectation, I know, going into 2023 is they better win the World Series. If they don't, we're going to be upset. So if Senga gives you that first year of dominance and brilliance because the league's not used to him, that may make it all worth it. Who cares what next year or the year after, you know, turns into, right? I mean, obviously you don't want it to be a disaster, but the goal is to win now. When you have a 40-year-old ace and a 39-year-old ace, co-aces, whoever you want to call the actual ace, last year it was easy to say it's Jake, it's Jake, it's Jake, because he was our guy. Now we got two guys. Now one of us is our guy. They're mercenaries, and that's okay, by the way. There's nothing wrong with mercenaries, because sometimes the mercenary can become your guy. Kevin Durant became my guy. Started off as a mercenary. Then he wanted to trade. Then he became my guy again. But when you're led by two Hall of Fame pitchers, if Senga's first year is the brilliance of Tanaka's and he stays healthy, that's a huge, huge win. Huge win. Now, a couple of things before we get into the history of Mets Japanese imports. That'll be a nice stroll down memory lane. I've been hearing something over the last few days I heard it on the fan over the weekend. I've heard it on Twitter from Brave fans. This idea that's being peddled of the Mets are spending all this money and they haven't really gotten better. Well, let's be fair about that discussion. The New York Mets went into an offseason with a lot of really good players as free agents. Think about it. Jacob DeGrom, you want to call him the ace of the number two? I call him the ace, free agent. Chris Passett, the number three, free agent. Taiwan Walker, the number five, free agent. So you had three-fifths of your rotation, all as free agents. You had your starting center fielder, free agent. Second best outfielder on the market. And you had the top closer in baseball, free agent. So if you just wanted to maintain all those guys and just run it back, man for man for man, it was going to cost the Mets a fortune. And I'll break some news to you, and this, this may be stunning for those that don't think enough about this. The Mets, just on a year-by-year basis, in retaining the guys they did and switching Walker to Quintana, Bassett to Senga, DeGrom to Verlander, and then running it back with Diaz and Nemo, I can make a fair argument, save the few dollars. And here's how. DeGrom and Verlander is a little bit more complicated because the way Jake's contract is structured, he's actually not making nearly as much money this season. But if the Mets wanted to bring Jake back, that may have looked very different. Even on the contract they offered, it was going to be close to what they are paying Justin Verlander. So for the sake of this, we could say, hey, very close number, maybe a little bit more for Verlander. But if the Mets were going to bring him back on the same kind of short-term deal, the only way they were going to do it is by paying DeGrom a lot more money. There was no other way you were going to bring him back. Chris Bassett hasn't signed yet. I'll make you a prediction. And I'm pretty confident in saying this. Chris Bassett's gonna make a lot more than $15 million a year. And that's what Kode Sang is making if you average out the 75 over five. That's what he's making. He's making $15 million a year. Chris Bassett's going to make more. I know he's gonna make more. We all know he's gonna make more. How much more? I'm not sure. How many years? I'm not sure but I I pretty confidently can tell you that Chris Bassett is not signing a five-year, $75 million contract. I think that's fair to say. And the reason I know that, or at least I'm confident in saying that, is Taiwan Walker signed a four-year, $71 million contract. Four years, $71 million. Taiwan Walker, who I think we looked at as the fifth starter, is making more money than the third starter. Now, we should compare him to Quintana because that's more guy replacing guy. Well, let's take a look at what Jose Quintana's making. Quintana's making $13 million a year. So the thing, I don't know if enough people are explaining when they try to make their arguments, or maybe they don't care, they just want to make their arguments, is that the Mets, in running back what they sort of have, have actually saved money compared to literally bringing back the same guys. And I could argue they got better. Quintana makes less money than Taiwan Walker. Senga makes less money than Bassett. The Verlander DeGrom thing's a little bit more complicated, but look, Verlander makes more. I can't spin it. I just think if the Mets are going to bring DeGrom back, it wasn't going to be for $30 million in year one. It was probably going to be in that same range of between $42 and $45 million. And obviously, they bring Nimmo and they bring Diaz back. So it's not as if the Mets, and by the way, I think that whole argument about the Mets saving money on the Quintana-Walker flip and Sanga bassett flip while also possibly getting better is a compliment because they're not looking to save money to be cheap. Their payroll after taxes is going to be over $400 million. But the idea that the Mets are just spending money like drunken sailors and they haven't gotten better is not very fair and is not in the proper context. The context is, they had a lot of free agents. Now, you want to disagree with how it's being spent? Okay, I'm open ears to that. I understand that. I had a buddy of mine at work say, okay, I wouldn't have given Verlander $42 million. I would have, he didn't actually offer a solution, just said I wouldn't have given Verlander 42 Okay. Now, if we're being fair about that money, let's split it up. You want Carlos Correa? Maybe that's the guy you want to add offense. All right, Correa is probably going to cost in the 30s. Let's say $33 million. That leaves you about eight or nine to fill the Verlander spot in the rotation. Who the hell are you getting with that? I'll tell you. Andrew Haney. So if your argument is, hey, I would rather have had Correa and Haney with Correa on a long-term deal than just Verlander on a short-term deal, okay, I don't know if I agree with you, but that's the argument you can make. Anyone, and you'll hear it, Mets fans, anyone who just makes the blank argument of they spent a lot of money and they haven't gotten better. They're not giving you the proper context because look, there's an argument to be had. There's definitely an argument to be had on spending the money differently. I get that. There's no one way to do things. I think we all know that, but to attack the Mets spending and say, and they haven't gotten better. Can you believe it is not putting their off season in the fair context. They had a lot of guys who were key players to last year as free agents, three-fifths of their rotation, basically their entire bullpen, their center fielder and leadoff hitter. So it was always going to cost a fortune just to run it back with the same guys. It was always going to be the case. All right, as far as Seng is concerned, it's a five-year, $85 million deal. Assuming the money isn't spread out differently, that adds up to $15 million a season. He has an opt-out after year three. What that essentially means is if Kode Seng is as good as we expect, he's done after three years. This is another short-term contract. Now, if he doesn't opt out, that's actually a really bad sign because he's making 15 a year. And as I just laid out, Taiwan Walker is making more. And that's not a knock. Taiwan Walker's is a fine pitcher. He's an adequate pitcher. But if Kode Seng is looking at the market in three years and saying, I can't do better than two years, 30 million, because that's all that's left, that's probably not a good sign for us. So I think you have to look at this contract as yet another short-term deal that Billy Epler has hooked up. It's a three-year, uh, 15, $45 million contract. Here are the concerns about Senga, and here's how maybe this needs to be attacked. Kode Senga has never thrown more than 180 innings in a season. That happened back in 2019. Senga has never made more than 26 starts in a season. That happened in 2016, in which he threw virtually the same amount of innings as he did in 19, about 177. 175 innings, 180 innings nowadays, actually not a bad thing. I got the old benchmark was, can you get me to 200 innings? I don't think, realistically, you're looking at many guys to get you to 200 innings. To put it in the proper context, Chris Bassett, the guy he's replacing, made 30 starts last year and threw 181 innings. So if Cody Senga matches what Bassett did last year and matches his career high in innings, I think that's a win. If it's a few innings less, not a big deal. If it's 130 innings that's a problem because now you're looking to replace those 50 innings. Look, they lost 181 innings out of Chris Bassett and 157 innings out of Taiwan Walker. They have replaced it with Senga and with Quintana. And the hope is both guys will not only do it, but they'll do a better job of it. The key of what Walker and Bassett did last year that you keep your fingers crossed with Quintana and with Senga is that they went out and made their starts. Both guys went out and gave you full seasons. Taiwan Walker made 29 starts last year. Chris Bassett made 30 starts last year. But that's the most inning Senga's ever thrown. And Kode Senga right now is in the prime of his career. He's 30 years old. His career ERA in Japan is 2.42. So in looking for a comparison, I said, all right, let me find a guy who had similar numbers in Japan. So I can see, all right, he's got similar numbers to this guy, and then look at how that guy translated. Masahiro Tanaka would be the answer. Tanaka, now he came over five years younger, in fairness, but Tanaka had a 2.46 ERA in Japan. You Darvish, who came over at 25, had a 1.99 ERA in Japan. Hideo Nomo had a 3.19 ERA in Japan. Daisuke, 306. Hiroki Kuroda, Hiroki Kuroda, I give him credit, was like the same guy in Japan as he was in the majors. Like his numbers never changed. They were basically identical. He was Mr. Consistency. He came over when he was 33 and had a 3.55 ERA. But here's the thing about Senga. I mentioned that's his career ERA. If you look at his numbers last year, you know, the most recent example of Kode Senga pitching, he had a 1.89 ERA. And he did that in 148 innings and 23 starts. So maybe the best of Kode Senga is happening right now. Because this is the prime of his career. 29, 30, 31. This is it. So you look at the other guys that have come over. Tanaka ended up with an ERA of 3-7 in the major league. So it's pretty high compared to what it was in Japan, but like I mentioned, that first year he was here, he was completely unhittable, and I think turned into a real solid middle-towards-front-end starting pitcher in the U.S. We know how good Yu Darvish has become. Nomo was up and down, Matsuzaka was up and down, Kuroda was really, really solid. There's no way to know what Kode is going to be. But in terms of the innings that I talked about where He hasn't thrown more than 180 innings in a season and hasn't made more than 26 starts in a season. It furthers the point I brought up to you last week, Pete, that I think they've got to consider, even if it's not for the full season, for part of the season, going with a six-man rotation, assuming that they're healthy. It's what Senga would be used to from his days in Japan. It keeps Verlander and Scherzer well-rested. So you got three guys, I think, in that rotation that would benefit from it. Quintana, assuming he's healthy, not a big deal. Carrasco's getting a little bit older, so assuming he's still here, that could help. And it allows you a chance to see David Peterson and or Tyler McGill in this rotation. But I think adding Senga to me only furthers the idea that it would make sense to go with a six-man rotation. Your thoughts?
1: Well, listen, I mean... the. You have you still have Carrasco, which I'm still curious to see what they're going to do with Carrasco. I feel like there's a lot of rumblings that they may trade him, uh, which would then cut into your whole six man rotation thing. Even though they still have so much depth, uh, you you talk about Senga, you talk about his innings. He never really went past 180. Is there any injury history that we know of with, with Senga? That's my one concern. Has he had like Tanaka came here and the first thing was uh oh the UCL. He played without ever having Tommy John surgery, but that was always a question. Is there anything like that with Senga that we do know of? I think he had an ankle issue for a while. Like, I know he had that. I read about him having an ankle issue,
0: which is not overly concerning. Yeah, we're never going to ask him to pinch run. <laughs> right, right. And that, uh, any injury you're worried about is always shoulder or arm related. So that was the only thing I ever really saw. A part of it is that it's just different rituals in Japan. Guys pitch once a week. Guys aren't pitching every five days. And, you know, early in the season with a lot of off days, it, it really isn't a big deal because with off days and with rainouts, there are a lot of times throughout a season in which you're not pitching on regular rest. In fact, if you look at the season as a whole, more times than not, you're not pitching on regular rest. Like if you look at a breakdown, I'd have to guess it's almost half and half where you get the fifth or sixth day of rest as compared to the four days of rest. But that's a part of just coming over and one of the kind of, uh, adjustments Japanese pitchers have to make is that the rotations are different. You just don't pitch as much over there. That's why he's never made 30 starts in a season. It's not necessarily because he isn't healthy. It's because that's not what they do over there.
1: Well, you're also going to have a situation. That we got into a lot of, like, you know, the fact that the season was so, not I will not say compacted, but there was a lot of impact with weather delay with rain and stuff like that and then we had a bunch of double headers that were thrown in there and that's where you kind of like how are we, how are we going to make this work which is where the 6-6 six ro- six man rotation actually comes in handy you know what i mean so like rather than having people on short rest you're able to be to stretch that that rotation out so much I'm not opposed to it. The more I think about it, the more we talk about it, I'm really into it. Again, I think Joey Lucchese, personally speaking, is going to be somebody that's going to come and step up into this rotation and be a main. He's going to be sort of what you kind of want David Peterson to be, what Tyler McGill did for a moment, what Walker kind of did. I don't know if he's going to eat as many innings, but I think his stuff is going to play in that rotation more.
0: Yeah, that's another option. That's another reason for it, because assuming health, and I know you can because guys are going to get hurt as much as we fear it. And it's funny, the Mets last year, you think of DeGrom and you think of Scherzer, but the rest of the rotation was healthy. You know, Carlos Carrasco missed a couple of turns, not a big deal. Taiwan Walker was mostly healthy. Chris Bass was mostly healthy. So 60% of that rotation essentially went out every five days and started. It was the top-end guys in DeGrom and Scherzer who missed extended period of time, but you mentioned Lucchese, David Peterson, Tyler McGill. Not as much Elisar Hernandez, but he's yet another option. Jose Budo, again, another option. They have a lot of guys, and it's going to be important over the next couple of years to develop some arms. The guy who I think who has the biggest upside is David Peterson. To you, it's Joey Lucchese. All right, well, let's see what they have. You know, that's, that's the bottom line. Let's just see what these guys are. And I also think it'll just make it easier for a guy like Kode Senga to get used to this when – He'll make starts on the fifth day. Like it's gonna happen, but maybe it doesn't happen on a really consistent basis. And I do think it benefits Verlander and it benefits Scherzer. By the way, when the announcement's made or you find out, did you have raw excitement about the Sangha signing or was it very matter of fact for you?
1: So, okay, Uh there was one person who announced it and I you know me. Like there's I have to be specific. First of all, we went to the John Heyman and the uh, and a few years ago, Bob Nightingale. So you get hesitant, and the person that announced it, we don't usually trust as a source. So, like, I'm sitting there going, like, all right, give me another source. And everyone's like, oh, but look, it's spreading out. And it's like SMY's reporting it. MLB Network, Fox News. But they're all signing the same guy as a source. I'm like, I don't believe it. And then Passin, and then Ken Rosenthal, the other people finally came. fine sand came on board. Then I, then I was like, okay, relief. So I was, like, a little bit like, <laughs> I don't want to fall down this piss Because, listen, I understand. Sango was the clear-cut guy, so does it change anything of, like, Everything is lining up the way we expected. We expected as soon as DeGrom wasn't going to be there, Verland is in the mix. We expected Quintana was to be a, someone that was going to be on the radar, which I kind of, we never actually nailed Quintana, said that that was going to be the pickup, but we knew something like that. So it made sense. Senga was the guy that was like, oh, makes so much sense, especially with Otani coming back. We said we need to get Nemo. It happened. So it wasn't like this, like, oh my God, we got our guy. It's like, Okay, but what's next? Like, I'm still waiting for one more big chip <laughs> to fall. And here's the thing is, you broke it down. Dude, you said it. Like, we're over the luxury tax. It is what it is. And you talking about, like, how we could have spent money differently. Verlander's money could have gone towards Andrew freaking Heaney. No, but here's the thing is, dude, we're talking about there's going to be trades made. I think people forget this. We're, we're, we're talking about things that are actually happening. We've been saying the Mets need to now trade some assets. James McCann is, what, $12 million. If you package him with, I'm not sure if they're going to do it, but an Escobar or, or a Kana or even Carrasco, you're talking about $20 million plus off the books. You're telling me you can't go $30 million for Carlos Correa? <laughs>
0: I don't think they're going to go after Carlos Correa. I really don't. And I think a lot of it is that if you look at the way this team has spent, obviously Nimo is a long-term deal. Edwin Diaz is a long-term deal. But the Verlander one is not a long-term deal. Quintana's not a long-term deal. And even Senga, if he's any good, it's not a long-term deal. It's going to be a three-year contract because he's going to opt out. I don't think for a guy like Correa, who I've got some concerns about, uh, there's been talk that he's got back issues he's dealing with. And if you're going to commit to a nine- or ten-year contract, which is, I think, what they would have to do, uh, I'd be pretty concerned about laying out a ten-year, $300 million deal. I got to tell you. Uh, that's not to say Correa on this team doesn't make it better. Obviously, it does. But on a contract like that, I'd be a tad concerned. And I don't know how much more they're actually going to spend. But I will say this. When they lost to And obviously, I was devastated. You were devastated. We laid out what we now wanted them to do. It took a couple of days, but we dusted ourselves off and said, all right, these are the guys we want. And you could go back to that DeGrom episode. To me, it was Verlander-Senga. And the reason I never brought up Quintana, and this is what surprises me, is I didn't think they were going to add three starting pitchers. I didn't. I thought that, because I didn't think of trading Carlos Carrasco, which I agree with you, is on the table. It's not a lock, but I think they'll certainly listen and see what kind of value he has. Because logic says he'll have a lot of value. You miss out on Senga, you miss out on Taiwan Walker, you miss out on any pitcher you were going after, you could acquire a guy on a one-year deal, a very reasonable contract. But I figured, and this is where I was clearly wrong, that they were going to replace Bassett, Taiwan Walker, and DeGrom with two guys. And then basically treat the fifth spot in the rotation as a competition amongst David Peterson and Tyler McGill. They ultimately still may do that if they trade Carrasco. But when we were laying out this offseason, I didn't think of it that way. I thought of it as they'll add two guys. And once they lost to Grom, the two guys I wanted, the two guys you wanted, they added. So while I'm not celebrating because there's still a part of me hurt by everything that happened with Jake, you do have to move on. I'm a Met fan. I can't live with the grand pain forever they pivoted in the way that we wanted by adding Senga and by adding Justin Verlander on a short-term contract they're not done though i mean you're right now i don't think they're they're not done leads to a 10-year contract for Carlos Correa or a 6-year contract for Dansby Swanson and i don't think it has to cuz i think the mets are showing you the formula right now they're showing you the strategy and the strategy is we are going to spend We don't care about the luxury tax, but we're going to do it on short-term smart contracts. If all of these contracts fail, and I don't want to say all of them because Nimmo and Diaz are a little bit different, but if Verlander fails, if Quintana fails, Scherzer at the end of his contract fails, the money goes away, and you'll be able to pivot to something else next year, year after, year after that. So in terms of, okay, guys, what do they do next? I think that, yeah, they're going to look to trade McCann. I don't know if they're going to look to trade Escobar and Canada, but considering the money they make, they can be had, especially if you want to give Beatty the third-base job. Hey, trading Canada is a little bit more difficult. Like, who the hell is playing left field then? The Mets are not exactly flush with outfielders right now. They only have one, two, three, four outfielders on their 40-man roster. Not including a guy like Jeff McNeil, who could play the outfielder. Darren Ruff, who I assume is going to be traded away because they're not having Darren Ruff on the opening day roster. They only have Kanna, Nimo, Marte, Khalil Lee. That's it. So they're not exactly in a position to be dealing away Canna unless they want to pivot to signing you know, a fourth or fifth outfielder. And there are some available. You want to go sign Tommy Pham? You want to go sign Chad Pinder, the former A who could play everywhere? They can't sign Guillermo Heredia because he signed in the KBO, plus he sucks. So who the hell wants him? I do like Tim LaCastro, though. I think he's a perfect fit. Right-handed outfielder, a lot of speed, pinch runner off the bench. I think that'd be a nice
1: addition. What about, the, think, what about the guy Tilapia? What's the, what's the guy from the Rymel play- Tapia? Yeah, there we go. Tilapia, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's a left-handed bat.
0: I think I'd prefer a right-handed bat. If I'm really thinking about my fourth outfielder.
1: I'm just, I, listen, I'm not trying to sell any team on, on on trading for Cana or trading for Escobar. But think about this. Those two combined make like $20 million. And next year's contracts are, opt- You can it's a club option. So you don't have to pick it back up. Yeah, but what do they do? Here's my question with that.
0: If they're trading Canna and Escobar's money, what's the reason? Is it to save on the tax bill, or is it because they're going to go sign someone
1: else? If you're telling me that it's too much money to commit, and I understand the the Correa thing is it's it's a long term. You still need a big-time bat. So J.D. Martinez, say, for example, if he's a one-year deal... For twenty five plus million dollars or whatever, I don't think I think that's too much. It's not twenty five million. It no. is. That's that, yeah, right, exactly. But the point is, you could still sign someone, even if it's a two year deal with a one year opt out. Yes, you could sign someone like J D Martinez, and if if it's a question of well, I don't know if they could spend that much money because you're still gonna get some more relief uh bullpen help and stuff like that and we still need to get a bat so we'll get a small piece you could trade those guys allocate 20 million dollars and boom jd martinez no that's come fine on if, if if that's the reason
0: to do it like I, I, that's what i'm asking about if you're trading canon escobar because and look steve cohen's spending a lot of money so i'm not going to sit here bitching about his tax bill and how high it needs to be i appreciate how much he spent right now the bill in total payroll tax could be up to 400 million dollars so it's in a whole new world compared to the world we were used to with the Wilpons. But when you say, hey, you could package McCann and Canna and Escobar, forget McCann, he's useless. Canna and Escobar are not useless. I don't want to trade them strictly to save on a tax bill. You know, if you're telling me you're trading them because then you're going to use that money to sign a right-handed DH, okay, let's talk about it. Okay, fine. But I'm not doing it. Because I think it makes the team worse if you're just looking to save on a tax bill. I mean, Cohen can do it. I'm not going to yell at him. But that's not something I'm endorsing right now. No,
1: I'm not saving money so that I can go and like you know lower our bill. I did, but at this point in time, they're they're over, and I think he has a quote where it's like I'm not going to go over by like a million or two. If I'm going to go over, I'm going to go over, and that's what they're doing. By the way, then there's the, no reason to trade Escobar and uh, can Well, and just, what the hell's the difference? Then, then just, you just then, go then, sign the right-handed DH, then, and then I'm fine with that. But you gotta, you gotta, you have to do that. You can't not do that. And by the way, I just want to say something. You and I had this conversation well before the offseason even started. I looked at you and said, we need to do this, that, the other thing. And you go, the the payroll's going to be over $350 million. I said, yes. And that's what it should be. We had that conversation a thousand times off there. So I'm happy that our owner has realized that in this year, particularly, he had to make this move to go over and make and have a payroll of $350 million. It had to right. happen. Right. And, and like I
0: said, it could have been higher if he retained his guys. Like, Chris Bassett's going to make more money than Kode Senga, and Taiwan Walker is making more money than Jose Quintana. So this bill, which is incredibly high, to retain a bunch of guys or at least retain spots—the the number three spot in the rotation, number five spot in the rotation—they've actually saved compared to bringing just Chris Bassett back and Taiwan Walker back. I, they they're. Look, it's December. It's the middle of December. I mean, there, there's going to be other moves, whether it's trades, whether it's a right-handed DH. I agree with you with the bullpen, but right now, so far, I'm happy. That'd be my answer. So far, I'm happy with what's going on. Disappointed about the Jake stuff, but I think they pivoted in the right way. The rotation has a chance to be elite. Their bullpen has a really good one-two punch at the end now with David Robertson and Edwin Diaz, and I love the deal for Brooks Raleigh. I think it's an underrated kind of trade. And look, the lineup impact, is going to be about Alvarez and Beatty. That's where the lineup needs to get better. It's not as if the Mets are running back the exact same lineup with no reinforcements. It's easy to think that, assuming they don't make another move for a bat. They're adding guys who barely played last year in Brett Beatty and Francisco Alvarez. The other thing that feels so different from the Wilpon era is not just a payroll that's going to get to $400 million, but think about the Japanese imports in New York Met history. Think about the guys. I got the whole goddamn list if you want to hear it. And it's sad. It's sad that with all the talent coming over from Japan over the last two and a half decades, some legendary players like Ichiro Suzuki, Like Shohei Otani, more on him later, Masahiro Tanaka, Hideki Matsui, a lot of guys. Think about who the Mets have brought over. It all started in 1997 when a left-hander named Takashi Kashiwada came over as the first addition into the late 90s. He was 26, he pitched in 35 games, and he had a 4.31 ERA, and everybody forgot he existed. A year later, they brought over Masato Yoshi, who will always live in med history as the guy who started Game 1 of, I think, the ALDS against the Diamondbacks. And I think he may have started Game 1 of the NLCS against the Braves, if memory serves correct. But he went out, made 58 starts over two years, had a 4.17 ERA. It was not good in the playoffs, but did make three postseason starts for the New York Mets. He was a 33-year-old right-hander when he came over and was fine. There's nothing wrong with him. He was just blah. I don't remember this guy I'm about to say. And I think I remember everybody in Met history, especially in my era of watching. Because think about it. I would write their names down. I scored every freaking Met game. But I barely remember Satoru Komayama, a 36-year-old relief pitcher. I really don't. I don't remember him. He pitched in 25 games through 43 innings And was 0-3 with a 5-6-1 ERA during that magical 2002 season. I don't remember
1: him. Do you remember him, Hoff? Komayama? No. No idea who this guy is. I'm looking him up right now. No clue. (laughs) I really don't. 2002 is a very
0: forgettable season. For me, it was my first full year of living far, far away and working full-time in Washington, D.C. And back in the day, in 2002, my first year away, I bought the MLB package. We didn't have, you know, tablets and all that kind of crap. But they did have the MLB package. But here was the problem with the MLB package. They would not show you every game. So every night, there would be about eight or nine games. Something like that. And sometimes the Mets weren't even shown. So you're spending all this money for the baseball package. And there's no guarantee you're seeing the Mets. And it was also a time in which I was doing a radio show back in 2002 down in Maryland down in DC and my shift, my, my show was seven to 10 at night. This was before DVR. So I would literally try to use a VHS cassette to tape these Met games on the MLB package with no guarantee the game would actually be on. So that's probably a good reason why I don't remember Sotaro Komayama and his 2002 season. The next couple of guys you'll definitely remember Uh, a year earlier in 2001, They signed the 29-year-old Tsuyoshi Shinjo, who went on and became a famous porn star in Japan. I don't know if that's a rumor, if that's true or not. We'll just go with it. Or maybe he had a collection of porn magazines. No, no, I think he was an adult entertainer. But we liked Shinjo. Shinjo was actually a really liked Met for the one season he was here. He wasn't terrible. The problem he had is he wasn't Ichiro. Because that was the same year that Ichiro Suzuki came over and signed with the Mariners, Shinjo, for the one year he was here, and he was the first position player to come over from Japan. Everybody else I mentioned was a pitcher. Shinjo played 123 games in 01, hit 268, had a 725 OPS, hit 10 home runs, and I remember used to jump in the air when he would catch a fly ball. That was his thing. But Shiyoshi Shinjo was a very liked Met for the one season he was here, for whatever reason. Then you have Kaz What a freaking disaster. What a disaster. Because unlike these other guys, and I mentioned earlier the Mets would never bring over a hyped-up Japanese player, Matsui wasn't hyped, but he was much more hyped than anyone else they ever brought over. Now, you knew he wasn't Hideki, but he was the shortstop. Bobby Valentine said, oh, this guy's great. Meanwhile, Bobby Valentine wasn't even the effing manager of the Mets. But he was like, oh, no, Kaz, you'll love Kaz Matsui. And they moved the young prospect, Jose Reyes, to second base for this clown. And he goes out, and he hits a home run in his first game. Hits his home run. run in his first game the following year. And then just sucked. Had no range. Couldn't play shortstop. Wasn't much of a hitter. Just probably the most disliked Japanese imported player the Mets have ever had. Because of the hype. And because of the fact they moved Reyes to, short, uh, to second base. But then they promptly moved Jose Reyes back. So, yeah, Kaz Matsui's on the Mount Rushmore of disliked players. Maybe of all time. I mean, it it doesn't have to be just someone who came over after playing in Japan. He may be up there as far as disliked overall because he was just, he wasn't good. He was not good. Then the Mets decided we need to take a break. You know, we haven't done a good job importing players from Japan. Let's just, let's take a break. So the next guy they imported, and I actually do remember this guy, was 40 years old. They brought over a 40-year-old soft-tossing lefty named Ken Takahashi who played 28 games and actually pitched okay. Had a 2.96 ERA. And I think the story with Takahashi was he just wanted to prove he could pitch in the majors. He had a long, distinguished career in Japan, and he just wanted to come over for one year and say, Hey, look. I pitched in the United States of America, and he did it in 2009. Then they brought over a 35-year-old named Hisanori Takahashi, who made a handful of starts and wasn't terrible in 2010, went 10-6 and with a 3.61 ERA. And then they brought over a relief pitcher named Ryoto Igarashi, who appeared in 79 games and had a 5.7 ERA. He was terrible. And how Ryoto- old was he? He was 31 years old, Igarashi. Think about, think about these ages. 33 with Yoshi, 36 with Komayama, 40 with Takahashi, 35 with Takahashi, different Takahashi. This was Hisonori Takahashi. And 31 with Igarashi. So they weren't even bringing over young guys. The only young guy they brought over was, I guess Shinjo and Matsui were relatively young, 29 and 28. But their history was awful. Now, they did have four other guys who pitched in Japan, but they came over to the Mets after pitching elsewhere, like Kadeo Nomo, who pitched on the '98 team, like Shingo Takatsu, who was a quality reliever, like Nori Aoki, and like Dasuke Matsuzaka. But those guys weren't Mets Japanese imports; they were just free agents the Mets brought in after they had pitched elsewhere.
1: I mean, think about that history, Hoff. How awful is that? Oh, it's it's terrible. But but I by the way, I do have some breaking news for you. Uh, I dug up some info on Shinjo, and yes. according to Adam Rubin from back in... Remember that name, Adam Rubin? Yeah, of course. Back in 2013, he posted, Shinjo, by the way, was never a porn star in Japan, despite a Mets official believing he did have that post-baseball career. He does look like some sort of Rico Suave, though. I will say that. So he was never an adult entertainer? Never.
0: Okay. All right. Well, I'm sure he enjoyed no. having that rumor about him. Yeah. He certainly dressed like one, though. <laughs> I tell you, I think he was. If we polled everybody, I think Shinjo's the most popular Japanese player who ever played for the New York
1: Mets. No No question. Him and Benny Agbayani, those are the two guys who are like, oh, they're they're boys. Were they they even on the same team? They were, Were right? With whom? Uh, Shinjo and Agbayani. They were on the same time, right? Same era? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because
0: Agbayani was on the O one team, I think. I think that was his last year with the Mets O one. Because Shinjo was only on the Mets for one year; He was only there, and then I think he went to the Giants. He only signed a one year contract when he came over, so he was not like a long term Met by any stretch.
1: So it's it's not going to take much for Senga to really outplay his uh, his previous regime. If Kode Senga isn't the greatest Japanese import in Met
0: history, we have a problem. <laughs> we we have a. <laughs> We have a freaking major, major, major problem. couple emails at the RicohB at gmail.com. Clayton Caldwell says, hey, Evan, how big can I dream? Is Uncle Steve going to go to $500 million? <laughs> Here's what I would say, Clayton. I would not expect it. That's why I'm not going to sit here talking about Carlos Correa for an extended period of time because I just don't think that hey, they would ever invest in that kind of long-term contract for him. And I also think that there comes a time where you do stop spending. I'm just not sure what that number is. And I'm not even saying the Mets are at that number. I mean, they, they may keep going for all I know. Uh, Steve Guerrero says first time, long time. I have a trade proposal. I wanted you and Hoff's thoughts on it. All right. Mark Vientos plus a mid-level prospect for Gregory Soto. Yeah, I'd be very intrigued by that. I would be very, very intrigued by that. Even though Vientos could have a really important role on this team, Vientos as a right-hand hitter who can certainly mash left-handed pitching. Uh, I don't think his role here doesn't exist because Alvarez could very well become the everyday, everyday catcher. And so while I've envisioned Alvarez as a part-time DH, part-time, full-time catcher, I certainly think there's a possibility Alvarez just ends up catching 135 games. And so Vientos could become a big part of this team, even though it appears like Buck has no faith in him playing any kind of defense. Gregory Soto, as another weapon to this bullpen, would be very intriguing. Now, he does have some control issues at times, and there are moments in which I've watched him, and he would just make you pull your hair out. But 27 years old, throws 100 miles an hour, has been, over the last two years, a quality relief pitcher. Now, he's closed games for Detroit, obviously coming here. You don't look at him as a guy that would need to close games, but would certainly lengthen the bullpen as another weapon. And what's interesting about Soto is that he's not a guy you're bringing over to get lefties out. Like, his splits actually are reverse splits. It's not like he dominates lefties the way a Brooks Raleigh does. He's equally as good. In fact, I think last year his numbers were better against righties than they even were lefties. So Soto's just adding another quality reliever who throws really hard, who you think maybe you can harness a little bit and make even better. Uh, but he's not a guy who's coming in just to get lefties out and would certainly lengthen the bullpen. I would, I would definitely be intrigued in a trade like that. So that's a good one because I got another trade offer. Uh, from Lewis Alamio. And Lewis did not put together a good trade. I'm sorry, Lewis. Hi, Evan and Hoff. I have a trade idea. I wanted to know your thoughts on it. Since Brian Reynolds hates being with the Pirates, <laughs> which is true, what are the odds the Mets could put a package together headlined with Mark Canna? Well, we got to stop right there. The Pirates have no interest in Mark Hanna. The Mets could pay the entire bill. That wouldn't really do anything for Brian Reynolds. He then mentions a couple of lower-level prospects, depending on what the Pirates want. Could Brian Reynolds play left field? Yeah, Brian Reynolds could play left field, but let me, let's me let be real about what the Pirates are going to want. The Pittsburgh Pirates would want Brett Beatty right now. They're actually loaded at third base. Okay, they're going to want Francisco Alvarez. They're going to want Kevin Parada. They're going to go to the moon, because if they're going to trade a really good switch-hitting outfielder, in the prime of his career, with three years of team control, it is going to be very, very costly. And I don't think those are the kinds of trades the Mets are going to make. Now, the Mets may make a trade over the next few weeks. I think as free agency has certainly gone nuts over the last couple of days and weeks. The trade season will eventually start. But I don't think the Mets have any interest, any interest, in, ta- in trading top prospects. And rightfully so. And I think that's a big part of why they're spending the way they're spending. The thought being, we want to keep our prospects. We want to develop our prospects, many of which are graduating into the major leagues this season, so that three or four years from now, we don't have to have a $350 million payroll. Now, the Mets have to have a high payroll because they don't have the starting pitching right now to put together a championship quality rotation unless they buy players.
1: That's the truth. That's why I like that soto trade because he has control till what 2025, 2026, yep. whatever it yep. is. Yep. And I don't know if you're gonna have to give up a top level prospect for him, but I think that you're better you're more likely to get a relief pitcher during the offseason than going for these Like I, I don't wanna do that. I never wanted to go for a top player that's like disgruntled or whatever it is. Let's try to get let's try to get Juan Soto from the Padres. or, or Otani now. No, wait for them to hit free agency. I don't got time for that. We don't we don't have the prospects for that.
0: Yeah, and, and look, and trading top prospects for a guy who's a free agent at the end of the year is so, so risky. You know, you promised me a championship, fine, but there's going to be discussions. We can preempt it now if the Angels struggle about trading for Shohei Ohtani. And look, the Mets are going to go after Ohtani. We all know that. That's obvious. We've been talking about that for months. But there's a chance he doesn't want to play here. There's a chance that even Steve Cohen's money wouldn't be able to buy him. Can you imagine trading three top, top prospects for a few months of Otani, and then he says, hey, thanks for the memories, but I'm going back to the West Coast? It'd be a nightmare. It'd be a disaster. So I don't want to trade prospects to begin with. Whenever we talked about replacing a guy like Nimmo or DeGrom, if we lost them, I always shied away from wanting to make trades because I don't want to weaken the farm system. I just want to buy players. So I don't know what they're realistically looking at as a return on James McCann or Eduardo Escobar or Mark Hanna or Carlos Carrasco if they are indeed traded. I don't think it's going to be anything crazy good. And I don't think the Mets are walking away with that right-handed power bat that everybody's envisioning. I just don't see it. I don't see a trade like that out there. But I am not interested right now with the way this team is built in trading top, top prospects, and I don't think they will. I don't think they're going to go down that road. But right now, the focus now turns towards finishing out this bullpen, which features Drew Smith, Brooks Raleigh, David Robertson, Edwin Diaz as locks. Those are the guys you sort of look at and say, all right, they're locked in. They're, They're in the bullpen. There's a few other guys. I mean, Zach Green's a Rule 5 guy, so unless the Mets just offer him back to the Yankees, he has to be on the Major League roster. And they've got a lot of other kind of mid-candidates. John Curtis, Jeff Brigham, Sean Reed Foley, Tommy Hunter, Bryce Montes, to Oka, Steven Ngosik, who, by the way, has no options left. So Nagosik's either in the Met bullpen or they've got to put him through waivers. Steven Writings, the guy they acquired from the Yankees, William Woods, Uh, Tyler, Saucedo. So they got a lot of options. But obviously, I think we're looking for a few more dependable bullpen options to go along with the four guys out there right now of Diaz, Robertson, Smith, and Raleigh. But the rotation is set. Would it'll be very interesting to keep an eye on the trade market if they do look to move Carlos Carrasco, which means they're opening up a rotation spot for David Peterson, or if they're going to keep Carlos Carrasco and strongly consider a six-man rotation. Coming up next week, obviously more reaction to what's been going on, uh, more ideas on what they should do to fill out this roster, whether it's a power bat, whether it's a fifth outfielder, whether it's specific bullpen arms they should target, and also... I talked about this a while ago and we haven't done it, but now I think with Nimmo back and with DeGrom gone, it's the perfect time to do it. And that's going through med history for all of us to that great player or not great player, but guy you loved and when they left and how it felt. For me, I experienced it last week with Jacob DeGrom. For many people, it was guys who weren't even stars. I got one guy, and we'll get into it when we do the episode, who was explaining he was devastated when Brett Butler was no longer a Met. So we'll have an episode coming up next week dedicated to losing your beloved Met player, whether star or mid kind of player. And you can email us, guys, that kind of did that to you at b at gmail.com, b at gmail.com if you want to email the podcast. We appreciate you listening, appreciate you communicating. Obviously, Pete producing Tiki and Tierney. You can check them out during the week and meet with Craig throughout the week at 2 o'clock. Thank you very much for listening, and stay tuned for a few more days from now, Wednesday night and a Thursday, for your next edition. Other than there being breaking news, then we'll give you one sooner of Rico Bronya.